In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 8. This is a very light-hearted passage, which will go very quickly into a very dark <laughs> section of the Song of Songs. Um, it's the season of spring as we come to this section. Fittingly, it's the season of spring for us, although today was this odd, wacky, like, back-to-winter day. But we've been having beautiful weather, and um, like in this passage, like in our world... It's it's a season of the birds and the bee uh, the bees and the trees, um, all those things, blossoms, trees. Uh, it's also a season of where you were once looking out through the window. Now we get to go out and enjoy what we once saw through the window. We get to go outside. We get to feel the warmth of the sun. That's that's the season of spring. It's it's known as the season of where love is in the air because all around you. Nature is twitterpated, if you will. Um, it's just the season of so much is being awakened in spring. Because here we are at the thaw of winter's frost and at the promise of summer's harvest. Spring is in that sense a halfway house. But not everybody enjoys spring as an outdoor event. Sometimes we get caught up by allergies or by um, staying inside of our nice, clean, modern lifestyles. And we don't notice the changing of seasons because we're never outside. Um, that's, that's, that's true in a physical sense. But there's a spiritual sense in which I want you to see that, too. Is that in the Song of Songs, we're entering into this spiritual season of spring, of resurrection life. And some of us aren't going outside. Not everybody is walking into the spring air with Christ. Now, when Christ comes into our lives, the death of winter is melting, and the promise of summer's harvest is coming, and that's where we are. That's what the church is, is we're walking between these times, the resurrection life, the new hope, the growth, the fruitfulness of spring. Um, we saw last week that... The bride uh, is betrothed to the king, and the king reinstills in her confidence. She feels ashamed of who she is, and she doesn't feel worthy of being united to the king. But the king, as we saw, invites her into his presence, and she's infected with certain aspects of his nature until by the end, she gets full-on lovesick. She's so infected. And she... It seems that the passage indicates her love sick. She's asking, like, give me food to sustain me. And then it seems that she's about to pass out or faint or is asking to be caught before she does because she ends up in the arms of the king. And what happens after that? After we fall into love with Christ, after we've made that plunge, that trust fall into his arms, we've given ourselves to him, what next? How do we recover from being sick with love? Not everybody recovers from the sickness of love. For some, meeting Christ, their first encounter with Christ was a magnificent experience, an event, and that's all it was. And they remain inside the rest of spring. How do we, how do you recover from your fall into love with Christ? Some people wake up and put the whole thing behind them as if it was just a phase that they went through. It's like, that was, that was necessary for me to get to where I am now. But man, that was when I was younger. The phrase phase is a little bit dangerous in this sense because it makes us think of things of, it makes us think of those phases as things we grow out of. Oh yeah, I, I met Christ in the Christianity thing, but I've kind of grown out of that now. Some people, uh, wake up from their fall in love and then think, whoa, that was a bit excessive. Let's tone it down a little bit. Let's mellow out. Let's let's be a little more sustainable through the rest of this gig. So they kind of live a very, like, under-the-radar Christianity. This is how we're going to cope with our wake-up. Others wake up and try to regain or recreate the magic of their first encounter with Christ and try to make that the case every day of their life with Christ. 
The problem with this is that our encounters with God are as much a work of his grace toward us as it is our decision to turn to him. We cannot, through our own willpower, recreate visions or moments or encounters with Christ. We, in other words, like in all relationships, we can't keep up that first, I'm swooning with love thing. It's just a matter of how do we now move forward How do we wake up from our being sick with love? That's what we see here in 2 verse 8. There's this gap. Um, 2 verse 7 had this refrain where where the bride says, I jury you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and does the field. They do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That's a refrain. It's going to happen two more times in this book. So it's like the close of a section. Our passage tonight will close with the same refrain. Uh, so then we have, so we have this transition. And it's like, okay, she swooned. She fell into love. She was sick with love. Now what? Some time has passed. And we find in verse 8 that now the king is bounding down the mountains to her house. He's going to call her out of the home. So here she's, she's recovering. She's waking up from her spell, her encounter with the king. How are we going to respond in this next phase of our relationship with the king. Um, see, all of these reactions, it was just a phase, we need to mellow out, or we need to recreate all the emotions all over again. All of these fail to recognize a very important spiritual truth. And that is that the king leads us, the bride, into growth through seasons. Okay, our Growth and union with God is not just a straight trajectory where every year, every month, every week of your life, you could just chart this perfect, like, you know, basically this little trend upward. It's more like an oscillation. We feel like we are really in his arms right here. Hold me. I'm sick with love. And then somewhere later, you feel like, does God exist? Does he hear my prayers? I have forgotten what it feels like to be loved by him. But then we swing back the other way. This is how you, okay, by the way, you know you go through this. You're not off. You're not weird. This is how the Christian life works. And this is what the Song of Songs is showing us in this passage. As we pursue, this book, remember, invites us into the Holy of Holies to be united with God. Um, in the way that marriage is a picture of union between man and woman. Uh, it's also, it's what you would call like a sacrament or it's like a symbol. It's a spiritual reality. So the physical world teaches us about the depths of the spiritual world. So marriage becomes a window through which we see God and his church. We are becoming one with him. Now, this doesn't just mean we get really close to him. This means that as two become one, two become one. This is union in its fullest sense. Two natures intermingling was Gregory of Nyssa's phrase, intermingling with one another. This is what we're after. And we're going to see the king uh, lead us here. Um, so what we need to know before we dive into this is that your soul is capable of infinite growth into union with Christ. Your soul is capable of infinite growth because God is infinite. And even when we think that we have gone leagues beyond where we were, there will be moments in the oscillation of our life where we will suddenly realize, I have hardly scratched the surface. Mm -hmm. We will never in all of eternity find it enough time to become exactly like God. This is the marriage we have for eternity. Okay, so tonight, the king leads the bride into union through the seasons of springtime and nighttime. Those are our oscillations, springtime and nighttime. So let's go through it. Chapter 2, verse 8, we see springtime. I'm going to just read through this section, then we'll go back and comment on some of it. So you can get the sense of the season. 2 verse 8. The voice of my beloved. This is the bride speaking. Remember, she's not yet married. They're betrothed, but we're calling her the bride nonetheless. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. 
My beloved is like a gazelle or like a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. And allergies. <laughs> Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in bloom. And the bride can now, um, she's saying in her mind, my beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes or pastures among the lilies until the day breathes, daybreak, and the shadows flee, night goes away. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. So here the bride is doing all the speaking, she's portraying, she's remembering a time when he came to her and she was telling us what he had said. His song of spring, spring is in the air, my love. Come out, come out and play. <laughs> come out and let's frolic. Let's frolic in the fields together. Um, so here we see spring is the halfway house. Um, the king comes bounding down from the mountains into the valley to meet the bride. The king comes bounding down the mountains into the valley to meet the bride. The 4th century preacher Gregory of Nyssa in his sermon on this passage said that this is a picture of the incarnation of Christ who came down from the mountains of heaven to the valleys of the earth to call his bride awake, awake, come to the resurrection life of spring. I love that picture. Um, so Christ is calling us into this transitionary period. The Song of Songs, um, this passage itself is sort of a halfway house. We looked last week at the bride's alienation from the king. She felt unworthy and the king had to convince her, I love you as you are, come to me. And then next week, we're going to see the wedding ceremony in 3 verse 6. So between alienation and consummation, we have this beautiful halfway house, the growing and budding relationship, as we should too be growing and budding in our relationship with Christ. So um, you notice the language is all about um, the flowers are appearing in verse 12 and verse 13, the fig tree ripens its figs and the vines are in blossom. You get this vivid picture of what's around you and how it smells and just you can almost feel the warmth of the sun. And this is a season of budding growth, which for us means that when we walk with Christ through the springtime, it's a time of bearing fruit. It's a time when we see fruitfulness and virtues, the virtues of Christ growing out in our lives. But um, there are some conditions. This is the beautiful proposition. It's the king's invitation. But uh, there are some things that must happen. So look at the invitation in verse 10. Um, you'll notice, you might have noticed, this happens twice. My beloved speaks to me and says, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. And then in verse 13, at the end of the verse, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. It's a repeated invitation. Because we're so slow to respond to Christ's invitation that we walk with him in his resurrection life of springtime. Um, his call here to arise, my love, it's, it's a lot like if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll know that in the last installment, the final battle, at the end, uh, we see some of our main characters 
arrive to the uh, the new Narnia, and they're just bewildered by how beautiful and like fulfilling just being in this place is, the new Narnia. And they are constantly urged by this refrain. This isn't even it yet. The refrain says, further up and further in. Different characters keep on prodding them and calling them further up and further in, further up and further in, and they keep going, and they're astounded with each new segment of the new Narnia that they keep going toward. And this is a picture of what our Savior, our King, is calling us to do, is arise, my love, and come away. It's time, it's time. Like, yes, we had an encounter, you were sick with love, but that is not the destination. You have not even arrived. You are like one foot into eternity. Arise, my love, and let's go further up and further in. I want to take you up to those mountains. I was just bounding down. Let's go through and see and smell and enjoy the life around us. Um, Gregory of Nyssa, in his sermon on this, uh, remember, 4th century, this is very old sermons. These are some of the, the oldest sermons you can find. He, he talked in this passage about how um, the soul, which is a picture of the bride here, is being called into this growth in the king, in Christ. And the soul is capable of infinite growth because God is an infinite king. As I said before, but that's what he writes here. Is we're being invited to keep going further up and further in that we, through participation in God's nature, have no limit. So, yeah, great, Brad. You had a moment, but there's so much more. Um, here's how he said it. What is meant is this, and what he means. He's actually commenting on the phrase, arise, my love. He says, what is meant by arise, my love, is this. The blessed and eternal nature that transcends every intellect. Following so far? God's nature transcends every intellect. I don't care what those fancy guys with a lot of, well, a lot of like initials after their name, like PhD, blah, blah, blah. Like the, his transcendence is above every intellect. Um, since, he, since his nature encompasses all things in itself. It is contained by no limit. For there is nothing that a human mind can discern that contains God's nature. Not time or place or color or shape or form or bulk or magnitude or interval or any other confining things, be it a name or a thing or an idea. No, but every good thing that the mind attributes to God's nature runs out to infinity and beyond all limit. Anything we can conceive of or think of about God, it already exists in who he is because he contains all. So we're like thinking, oh, this is so original, or oh, we got it, or oh, we understand it. It's like, no, actually, you're just a thought. You've got a thought that keeps running in one direction for eternity because there's no limit in God. So, yeah, new discoveries are amazing, but realize you still just took one more baby step into the eternal exploration of our union with God. It's amazing. But this invitation... The simple and this is Gregory still, the simple and pure and uniform and unalterable nature of God, being always that, um, it stands unlimited in its goodness and is never alienated from itself because it is not open to participation in evil. In other words, he's saying God's nature is unlimited because there's no evil in it. Evil would contract his nature. But because there's no mixture, it continues to go forever. His nature is unlimited. So then he says, his nature sees no limit of itself because it sees none of its contraries, sin, devil, evil, in itself. Which is then Gregory awakening us to realize we have an infinite space to go further up and further in. But there are a couple things that stand in the way. The things in us that are contrary to his nature are moving us backward. It's making us contract rather than expand. It's making us smaller rather than bigger. It's making our lives corrupt and finite versus receiving his infinite eternal life. So when the king comes and says, arise, my love, and come away, 
we must accomplish two actions in this passage. We must first overcome the wall. Did you notice the wall between the king and the bride? 2 verse 9. My beloved is like a gazelle or like a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. Now, it sounds a bit peeping Thomas-ish, <laughs> but I think what the text is just trying to explain is it's trying to portray the picture of his eagerness to see his bride, just wants to be with her. So um, don't think of this as peeping Thomas. Think of it more as like, there's a wall here. She hasn't opened the gate to me. I want to see her. He's like trying to find ways to see her, but she hasn't yet opened the gate. Um, this is what we must do. We must overcome the wall between us and Christ. Now, um, Christ has removed every barrier on his end to come and meet us. The last barrier between us and Christ, it's not death. It was the biggest one. It's not death. It's not your sin. It's your will. The one thing that stands between everything Christ has conquered is our cooperation of my will, our will with his will. And this is what C.S. Lewis says in the screw tape letters. He says that he has the demons, you know how the book is, the demons are talking. He has the demons say that God cannot ravish. It means God cannot force his way. God can only woo, which means invite, which means try to bring through convincing us. God cannot ravish, he can only woo. So here he is at the wall. And that's as far as God's nature will go until we say, take me further up and further in. So we have been made sick with love, infected by God and his love and his presence. But how are we waking up from this, if you will, hangover of love? How are we coming back from that? Are we drowsy and just gonna watch tv or catch up on the news or sleep in or just lay there and, oh yeah it's nice it's too bright outside or, or are we going to open the gate of the wall and say i'm coming away with you that's the first thing we must do overcome the wall second we must catch the foxes those pesky little foxes Two verse fifteen. Now we're not entirely sure who's talking here. Some translations have um, the husband, uh, the the king talking, which the ESV portrays. Um, if I, I don't remember the other, which ones did which. I, the New King James might portray the bride speaking here. Um, others actually put. You know how sometimes there's it, it, we saw at the beginning there are as a chorus of others who jump in and say something about the couple. Others have the the chorus of others saying this. So we don't know who's saying verse fifteen. But we do know that verse 15 needs to happen. It's a problem. So here's what verse 15 says. I side with, of course, I'm comfortable and used to the English standard. So I'm just going to side with that and say that the king is saying this. He says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. These foxes are those things that threaten the relationship between a man and a woman. So on that level of this story... Uh, the king's like, hey, we got something to talk over. <laughs> Will you come out? Let's have a stroll. Let's discuss these things. Maybe it's a defined relationship. Maybe they had a fight. Maybe, you know, something was said. Like, maybe someone said something about someone's mother. Happy Mother's Day. Um, I don't know. But, um, on one level, right, the, the, uh, the marital level, that's what we see, is that relationships have to be tended to. Foxes have to be driven out. But on the spiritual level, we see the same thing, that foxes get in the way of us and Christ. The foxes are the demons. They are the passions. They are the sins that try to eat away at the blossoms in the vineyards. The blossoms are our virtues. They're those parts of the nature of Christ that have infected us. And we're starting to bloom with his nature. That's what virtue is. It's, it's, it's Virtues come when we participate in God's nature. And they begin, we know that we're becoming one with God when we start to see his essence. Uh, essence is too strong of a word. Um, his likeness. Uh, his, uh, yeah, his virtues, like it's part of his nature, his virtues. So those are growing in us, but the foxes, the passions of the flesh that we covered weeks ago, 
the sins, the things we do for ourselves, and instead of opening up to God, these are eating at the virtues, and they're robbing our participation in his likeness. The vineyard represents our nature, where these things are growing, and where all this is happening. Have we caught the foxes? We, we, maybe we've overcome the wall, but have we caught the foxes? Or are we allowing things to fester and continue to own us and hold us? See, this, brothers and sisters, is the problem with sin. It's not that we met Christ, we became sick with love, we swooned, he caught us, and woo! Now the rest of our life is all about sin management. Like, that's how a lot of people think of Christianity. It's just like, well, I accepted Christ, and now I'm going to just try not to sin the rest of my life. And all these rules about how not to sin, that's not the image we have in the Bible. The image is that sin is, is a reverse course of our ascent into participation with his nature. Sin is the foxes that say all of the progress of being one with Christ is being undone because the demons are about division. They're about separating. Therefore, let what God made one flesh, let no man separate. Well, the demons love to separate the oneness we have with Christ. In fact, what diabolical means is to divide, is to separate. That's what they're about. And this is why we are cautious about sin in our lives, is because we want nothing that begins to eat away at the progress of becoming more one and like our king. So we must overcome the wall. We must catch the foxes. And apparently, she does so. She responds. We don't actually see the action, but there's the implication in verses 16 and 17 that she has done all of this. She's come outside. She's awakened. She's gone out past the gate or past the wall. And she and the king together caught all of the foxes. Now, before we actually look at that, I just thought that this might be a good aside right here. You and I catching the foxes is not about self-will and about self-improving ourselves and becoming more self-disciplined about not sinning. Um, it's always a participation with God's grace. You remember how Paul says in Philippians 2, 11 through 12, I think, he says that it is, um, for it is God who works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. Uh, no, I'm missing it. Okay. Sorry, um, but we cooperate. God comes and works in us, and then it's our will that says, "Yes, let's work." That's synergy, right? His energy, our energy, meet, and that's how we overcome the sins in our lives. So that's why it says, "Catch the foxes for us." Like there's a there's a there's a jointness to this. Um, now we see that she has done this. She's made all the appropriate steps because in two verse sixteen, you have a beautiful phrase of union: "My beloved is mine." And I am his. That's exactly like John 15, isn't it? Where Jesus and the disciples are walking through the vineyards. Same symbolism here. And Jesus says, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. There's synergy. Our work, God's work. He abides in us. We abide in him. Here we see, uh, my beloved is mine and I am his. He is in me and I am in him. And of course, on a marital level, that is physically true. One is in the other, and the other is in the other. You don't have to go too far. Um, but then in the spiritual level, like this is what salvation is, is when Christ is in us. But now we're no longer just, this is not Pastor Brandon James McCulloch, but I've died with Christ. I've been crucified with him. It's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me, and I am now in him, and our whole lives are now being intermingled. Um, this is, by the way, also similar to the phrase of when God says all over the Bible, he says, um, I will be their God and they will be my people. Mm-hmm. You see that in Exodus 6 verse 7. The purpose of the Exodus, the purpose of God liberating Israel from Egypt is so that I can be their God and they can be my people. Jeremiah echoes this despite Israel's failure on their end. He echoes this by saying there will be a new covenant and on that day, God will be our God and we will be his people. Jesus cites Jeremiah's covenant when he says, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I will be your God and you will be my people. I in you and you in me. And at the very end in Revelation chapter 21 verse 3, we see the conclusion that says, finally, I shall be their God and they shall be my people. This is what God has been after from the beginning is that we can say, 
I am my beloved's and he is mine. He wants nothing else but to share his nature with us. He wants the union. And this was the reason for our creation. And despite our going astray, he's been after reclaiming this purpose from the beginning. And so she is now experiencing, there's more than just this emotional encounter with God. There is a life that's being cultivated here in which I am receiving his nature. So, verse 16 again, my beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Um, that also, you'll see the footnote, at least in my translation, says, or it also means pastures, his flock among the lilies. One makes it sound very, um, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> and another makes it sound very like, oh yeah, he's just out there doing his thing. So you have interpreters choosing the sides. You guys know, like, a lot of people make this book uh, way more graphic than I think it it is. It, we will get there. Trust me. I told you at the beginning, this is a book of people getting naked. Um we will get there, but it's not, I don't think it's yet. I think people get so excited that there's a part of the Bible where we can actually explore this part of ourselves and they get like way too eager. Um, we just see like, she's just admiring him. Like they're on this walk and his, 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 his flocks are pasturing among the lilies, which by the way, you would never have sheep eating the lilies. That's not what sheep eat. They eat the dumb grass. That's what they eat. But the, the implication is that there is such an abundance of fruitfulness and lilies here that the sheep can eat what they want. They can eat the vineyards if they want. In fact, in Genesis 49, there's a prophecy about the sons of Jacob. Was it Judah? Oh, I think it was Judah where he said that um, they will tie a donkey up to the choicest vine. What happens if you tie a donkey up to a vineyard? He's going to eat everything off of that vineyard. That, In other words, there is so much fruitfulness in the kingdom to come, they will tie a donkey up anywhere. Because we have plenty. So that's one of the images we have here. Then in verse 17, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. Okay, so here we see she has received the invitation. She has responded. And now what she is looking for is this deeper union with the king. The soul wants to go deeper. It wants more union. We want more if he is mine and I am his. So what I see her declaring here in verse 17 is she's desiring the king to lead her up the mountains from which he bounded down. Take me like, like a stag up the mountains. Take me up there. Now, just so you know, so you can have some of your own in, um, input here if you don't like my interpretation, um, the King, the ESV leads you to believe that this is more of a yearning for um, physical intimacy. Um, just use your imagination. A young stag on cleft mountains. Cleft equals cleavage. Um, another way that this could be read is that she's desiring him to go away. Like, there's a relational problem here. They're talking about the foxes, and they're in an argument. And she's like, go back where you came from. So turn, my beloved. Go over there. Go up the mountains. See ya. <laughs> um, I don't see a lot of... Con- that doesn't convince me, but I'm just saying that is a way it could read. Um, or you could also read it, um, she's yearning for him to come back down the mountains like he just did, because he's leaving. They want another date before their marriage. So, oh, come back down the mountains like you just did. I see, rather, that there's a better connection here with her desiring, I, my beloved, and he's mine. There's this union. He came down from there, and if we're allowing Christ to be in this book, then we this is the Christian yearning to be taken up where Christ is. So she wants to be led up, further up and further in. She wants more union with his divinity um but as beautiful as all of this is we don't actually see that happen there's the desire for it to happen but what we see instead is chapter 3 verse 1 on my bed by night i sought him whom my soul loves i sought him but found him not i will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares i will seek him whom my soul loves i sought him but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. And I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Happy Mother's Day. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. 
by the gazelles and the does of the field that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is a tricky few verses, and I wasted way too much time this week <laughs> reading up and trying to figure out these verses. Um, because here's the thing. Um, there's quite a divide on the interpreters on what's happening here. So half basically say, this is actual, literal, like, this is a literal event here. She's trying to sleep. She's like, oh, no, my husband's out of bed. I can't find him. She tries to find him. She finds him. Somewhere in the middle of the night out of the city, like, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But that's like they're seeing that this is a literal thing. And then she takes him back to bed. And then they have a wonderful embrace. Um, others say, and you can tell if you're reading from the English Standard Version, that it literally just tells you this is how you should interpret it, that this is a dream. This isn't actually literally happening. She's on her bed, and she's having these nightmares of abandonment, which, well, if you remember young love, like, that's a thing. Like, you have all these fears of, they're just going to one day decide I'm not good enough. Ah!" And these dreams are happening. Also, I do like the dream interpretation because um, this, this is an odd event. Why does she have to go looking for him in the middle of the night out in the city? Um, and plus, it's been my interpretation that they are not yet married. She does say that this was on my bed, not our bed. Um, and then she brings them in and they, it just seems to be more about this is the bride's desire while we await the return of Christ and the consummation of our betrothal. This is what we desire. We're dreaming, we're yearning, we're waiting, but it's not yet there. We have this wonderful springtime experience with Christ, but then comes the nighttime. You're wonderfully fruitful, and you can say, I am my beloved's, and he is mine, and everything's clicking. And then there's just those seasons when it's like, I don't even know how to pray anymore. I don't even know if I want to pray anymore. And that preacher keeps on talking, and about two words made sense to me. That might be my fault, but sometimes it's because you're in the nighttime. (laughs) Her dream is exposing a desire for deeper union with the king, and um, now she feels abandoned. You've been there, haven't you? Where your your walk with God is oscillating. It's springtime, and then it's, it's nighttime. If that's the case here, what we have in chapter 3 is a picture of what has historically been called, you can call it whatever you want, this nighttime experience, but it's been historically called uh, the dark night of the soul. And that's when the soul suddenly has no sense of God's presence anymore. The soul feels alone. The soul hasn't necessarily given up on God, but it's just not quite sure how to go forward with God. It's dark. It's not a fun season. And here, the bride is experiencing the dark night of the soul. In verse 1, she says, On my bed by night. The word night in Hebrew is plural. So on my bed by the nights, my soul, I sought him whom my soul loves. By the nights. Now, how do you interpret that? If the word night is plural, it could mean that she... um, uh, this is her experience every single night. This is what she goes through every night. The nights. Or it can mean this is what she went through all night long. The Making the night plural just means through the entirety of the night. Or it could mean uh, the night of nights. Or in other words, this is the darkest of nights. That's a valid way to interpret the plural here, nights. And I favor that this is her experiencing the night of nights. This is the darkest of the nights in my yearning, in my waiting, in my longing. Suddenly there came a point when springtime felt so far away. And here I am in nighttime and I cannot find the one my soul loves. I went to the watchman. I went to the city square. I went to the marketplace. I could not find him. Then, then suddenly he's there. Like this is what we need to realize is that the dark night of the soul is real and it's hard, but it doesn't last forever. There's a point when in our searching, we find the one our soul loves. Um, This darkness, often we associate darkness with sin. That's not the only way darkness is used in the Bible. Darkness actually refers often to unknowableness. For example, when 1 John says, let us not walk in the dark, but in the light, and he tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Part of what that's saying is, yeah, 
the work of sin is darkness, but also if you're doing that, you're living in the realm of the unknown because God does not associate with that darkness. You're hiding from him. Um, but that this darkness is not referring to she lost God because she sinned. It's referring to she had grown through springtime to such a point that she had asked him to take me up to the mountains with you. I am yours and you are mine. Let us continue this mutual indwelling. And then there comes a point where this excitement of growth is happening and you can't believe how like on fire you are and everything's like, I love prayer. I never miss prayer three, 15 times a day. I'm communing with God throughout the day. And then all of a sudden, you're like, when's the last time I was talking to God throughout the day. When's the last time? It hits you sometime, right? Like, I'm in a a dark place Um, because God feels unknowable to me. You're growing and you're ascending, but then you hit this plateau and, and we don't know what's going on. We don't know how to get higher, how to get farther, how to keep going. And that's because God withdraws a little bit, at least his felt presence, a little bit, so that we don't get proud. So that we begin to realize all of this isn't my doing. It's not because I was praying so fervently. God is teaching me humility. He's teaching me his grace. He's teaching me to seek and to seek and to seek. And it is in these moments that you actually go into the highest parts of the mountains of God. In Exodus chapter 20, Mount Sinai is burning with fire. Smoke is going up like a column. And the voice of God booms forth the ten words. that It's in the Hebrew, literally, the ten words, the ten commandments come forth. And, and it says that the Israelites were terrified. And then you read this. Exodus 20 verse 21. The people stood far off. While Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Why the thick darkness? Because Moses is going beyond what the intellect can comprehend about God. Moses is entering into that place where God is so near in such a weird way that you feel like you don't know him anymore. It's dark. I cannot see you because you have absolutely gone beyond my faculty of comprehension. That's why this dark night, our union with Christ requires an oscillating of springtime, of nighttime, of springtime, of nighttime, and if you want to read this on your own, it's worth your time. It's worth the price of the book, really. Um, chapter 8 of the Screw Tape Letters, um, the demons are writing about this concept of oscillation. Lewis calls it the law of undulation. Um, and they're writing, and basically one of the things they say is make sure the humans never discover that this is part of how their nature works. Make sure they never realize that an oscillation is part of the plan. So that when they go into the nighttime, they despair and give up. Or they turn to the other things that made me feel better once upon a time. We must realize the reality of this so that we can press in. Like the bride does on the darkest of nights. What does it say she does in verse 2? I will rise now and go about the city. It's the darkest of nights. I'm going to get up like Moses and I'm going to actually enter the darkness. I'm going to embrace this and I'm going to trust the God who's calling me into what I don't understand or know. That's what the nighttime part of our walk is for. Springtime's easy, but don't despair in the nighttime. Keep going because guess what's around the corner? If we can press into the dark night of the soul, consummation is in verse 6. That's next week's passage. Solomon comes to her in the marriage procession. You're on the cusp of seeing more of God, experiencing another springtime in a nice higher level again. And this is what you'll experience. Your oscillations begin small. And if you keep on progressing in your union with God, the oscillations get bigger every time. Springtime is more intense. The dark night is scarier. 
it continues to oscillate. And that's, that's when you know you are willing to go with God wherever he's leading you. So why this dark night? Why is this necessary? You've heard a little bit, but I have two more ideas. Uh, first is that we need to understand that union with God is not something we arrive at. She could have said in chapter 2, verse 5, when she's sick with love, I made it! I'm at his banqueting table! It's all good! Let's coast through life now. The end. <laughs> As if you can arrive... I, I have, I'm completely united with the infinite God. Really? Wow, that's pretty presumptuous of you. See, I believe that we have made this error of thinking of God, only thinking of God within our mental capacity. And if I limit God to that, then of course I'm going to fully understand him. I'm going to fully know him. Because I have basically reduced God to the size of my mental capacity. But that is not good theology. Um, the dark night teaches us that God is far more unknowable than we've ever dreamed. That there are aspects of him that we could never reach in our limited understanding So this union with God is never something we arrive at. It's something that we continue to progress in forever and ever and ever. But it's like a book that just keeps getting better after every chapter. You're like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen now? You know, like your favorite TV. A lot of people love TV shows now more than movies because they have that sense of continuing. And a good show gets better as it goes. A lot of them unravel pretty quick. You, know, you should have killed this a long time ago. But I won't name any of them. But um, Gregory of Nyssa, one more time, he said that once the soul was there, or in other words, once the soul had entered into the darkness. Once the bride enters into the darkness, she learns that she was as far from receiving... I'm sorry. She learns that she was as far from arriving at perfect as those who had not yet made a beginning. When you you enter into that dark night, you realize, oh, I thought I was so grand because my springtime, I'm so fruitful with God. And then all of a sudden, the dark night teaches you, I've hardly made progress. Not because you're so lame, but because God is so mighty. Chapter, uh, chapter two, um, number two. And second reason for the dark night is that true union with God cannot occur until we freely conform our will with his will. We saw that implied at the wall. God does not ravish you, but like our union cannot happen until my will learns to conform with his. That's what good marriages do. Our wills work together in a good marriage. And it's the same with Christ. Our wills must work together. Dark nights are how, this is how Lewis puts it, dark nights are how God gains permanent possession of a soul. It's through these dark nights. Um, Because union with God, we're not talking about like a Buddhist concept where we're absorbed into God and God just consumes us and devours us, and boom, there we are. Um, That's not what union is. Union is not absorption. Union is about participation. Union means he wants this and I want the same thing. That's how union works. Just like in a marriage, bad marriages, the bad the way the world makes a church look about, like the way they talk about our concept of marriage is the man dominates the wife. She's absorbed into his life. That's not biblical marriage. Biblical marriage is the two wills cooperate together. And this is also what we need with God. We cooperate together. It's not absorption. It's participation in the life of God. So here's how Lewis puts it in the screw tape letters. He says, God leaves the creature, that's us humans, to stand up on its own legs to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. So sometimes God will withdraw his felt presence and leave us in the dark night of the soul so that we will carry out, we be able to stand up on our own legs and carry out from the will what is lost relish. Sometimes you don't want to pray. Sometimes you don't want to go to church. Sometimes you don't want to worship. But you do it because you want your will to mingle with God's will. Um, he continues, it is during such trough periods, that's what he calls the dark nights, during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, the springtime, 
that the creature is going to grow into the sort of creature that God wants it to be. Do you hear that? It's the dark nights when you're becoming the kind of person God wants you to be. Um, hence, the prayer offered in the state of dryness, the prayer offered by us in the state of dryness are those which please God best. Then, our, the demon's cause, is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and yet still obeys. This, what, this, according to the, this, this nice little imaginative writing about how the demons feel about us, they tremble. Their cause is never more at stake than when we look around and say, it's the dark night of the soul. God's abandoned me. I don't know. It's not really worth. I'm not getting anything out of this. But yet we still choose to obey. That is when their cause is over. Our participation in the demonic works of darkness is over when even when God seems to have abandoned us, we continue to seek him and enter into the darkness for him. That is when you know, I am my beloved's and he is mine. The dark night is a season. It won't last forever. One day the dream will end. This is a dream she's having. The dream will end. And you will see the procession of the king of kings coming to claim us. It will end. To quote Aslan at the end of Narnia, he says, The dream is ended. This is the morning. Because Lucy was really worried that, oh no, he's going to call us out of Narnia like he did in the past. No, Lucy, this is the new Narnia. The dream is ended. This is the morning. In other words, brothers and sisters, right now, we are in the first chapter of our unending love story with God. We're in the first chapter. You haven't arrived. We haven't (laughs) attained anything. It's going to keep going. It's morning. It's the beginning of the book. We can dive into the divine union with God all the days of our life and find out we've just begun. That's the joy of eternity, and that's what we have to look forward to. Our Lord and our God, Give us the courage in the dark night and draw us further up and further into perfect union with you 